0: Living your story right now in this moment. You know, no two stories are alike. We are all unique. We all have a different lens through which we see the world. We all have something to contribute, to share, to be. That uniqueness takes courage. It's not easy to stand in your truth. It's not easy to let yourself be vulnerable, to be really seen to be really heard. So many of us hide. So many of us stay hidden. So many of us make the choice to step forward, to own who we are, to own our stories, to share our voice. The tide is turning. We're moving into a space of deeper vulnerability, courage, authenticity, and love. We're moving closer to greater self-love, self-acceptance, honesty, and empowerment. To get there, to get to that space, means we have to authentically share who we are. It means we have to authentically show up as our true selves. The magic is in sharing who you are. The magic is in sharing your story. That's where this series comes in, own your voice, love yourself, stay true to your story, dive deep into your vulnerability, shine in your authenticity. Once you do, there's no stopping you. Stay honest, stay brave, stay true to who you are. Welcome to seek the joy podcast, the power of storytelling.
1: My name is Jess Ronnie, and this is my story. Oh God, no, please no, I whispered that late night in 2007, my legs numb from sitting motionless for far too long. I stared straight into the eyes of the young doctor as I replayed the events which had unraveled over the past few hours, trying to digest the news I had just heard. Earlier that evening, I had arrived at my dad's house for a short visit, and within five seconds of pulling into the driveway, I received a frantic call from my husband, Jason, "'Just call 911,' he gasped before the phone went dead. I arrived home to discover my husband laid out on a stretcher, moaning in inexplicable agony, grasping his head and forcing his palms deep into his skull as if to push the invisible pain out somehow. One of the paramedics pulled me aside to inform me that Jason must have known a seizure was about to occur because prior to losing all bodily control, he had secured the baby in her bouncy seat, put a movie on for the boys, called me, and then ceased until passing out. And now I was here, wanting to be anywhere but in this uncomfortable hospital chair, watching the doctor's lips form words I didn't want to hear or accept, as uncontrollable tears leaked from the corners of my eyes. No, 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 the only coherent thought I was able to form. Your husband has a brain tumor, and we need to operate immediately." Why was God allowing this to happen to our family? Jason, myself, and our three young children, Caleb, a five-year-old, Lucas, three years old with severe special needs, and Mabel, our six-month-old baby. We had a life to live. I had students to teach and babies to raise. Jason had a gym to manage and clients to train. It wasn't fair that God left most people our age alone to raise their beautiful, healthy families and their pretty houses, lining the manicured developments and nicely landscaped lawns. And then there was us. Somehow, in the luck of the draw, we had the severely handicapped son, which we had made peace with three years earlier. And now this? Now Jason, diagnosed with a brain tumor? Why? What had I done? Had we sinned somehow? Why did my faith need to be tested? Christian singer Natalie Grant's hit song, I Will Not Be Moved, came to mind as I wallowed in the pain and the stark realization of what was to come. My life had definitely been like broken glass, and I had kept the score. My story really began at a routine 20-week prenatal checkup where I sat rigidly still as a specialist informed me that my unborn child had most likely suffered a stroke, which had caused an extreme case of hydrocephalus. She continued explaining that I should begin preparing for a spontaneous abortion or at worst a child who would live only hours after birth. That unexpected prognosis brought forth an unrelenting faith and determination as I battled continuously in fervent prayer for my unborn child's life. On August 12, 2004, a little boy was carefully lifted out of my womb, and as he screamed a hearty cry of life, I wept, thanking God for his faithfulness. Today, Lucas is a thriving, joyful 13-year-old who is surpassing every expectation ever made about his future. And here I was again, in the same hospital, sitting in a similar chair, as another specialist proceeded to inform me of how bleak the situation was with my husband's health. He outlined how the next few hours and days were going to look for our family. At that time, I felt like a brain tumor diagnosis meant certain death, and so I began to brainstorm trying to figure out how I was going to manage three young children and a husband who needed brain surgery, chemo, radiation, treatments, and ultimately funeral arrangements. The surgery to remove the baseball-sized tumor was a success, and we were surprised to learn that one of our options was to do nothing. The pathology report determined that it was a grade 2 tumor, which gave us the option to watch and wait with quarterly MRIs to determine whether or not the tumor had returned. But this option came with the admonishment to be prepared, because when these tumors return, and they almost always do, they return with a vengeance. We laughed off this word of warning. Our faith was strong. God would take care of us. He surely wouldn't test our faith anymore. He could move on to someone else at this point. Early that spring, in the midst of our joy and elation over Jason's continued health, we found ourselves unexpectedly pregnant. We were excited and a little bit nervous to learn that we would be welcoming our fourth child to the Chrisman family in September 2009. And then the call from Jason one afternoon, Jess, the tumor's back. I have to check myself into ER immediately. His voice was racked with annoyance that summer morning in 2009 as he relayed the results of the morning's quarterly MRI. The watch and wait option had bought us a little over a year before we had to readdress the elephant in the room. Jason had rebounded almost immediately post-surgery in 2007, feeling like a new man with the tumor removed, returning to work and play with a new lease on life. We considered this MRI update just a bump in the road, but I did begin to purposefully update the medical blog, started earlier, to keep our family and friends in the loop about our options. We were convinced that surgery would remove the tumor once again, and we would return to our new normal as a brand new family of six. Jason underwent another successful surgery, with almost all visible tumor being removed. We were now in familiar territory as we waited for the biopsy results. We were fairly certain they wouldn't show anything too unexpected, after all, he had been feeling great and full of energy leading up to the results of the MRI. He quietly lay in the hospital bed recuperating. I sat in a chair next to his mom, slightly uncomfortable and extremely exhausted being six months pregnant. I hadn't slept much in the past few days while staying with Jason in the hospital during the day and then returning home at night to check on the children. The neurologist arrived and hesitantly walked towards us. The biopsy results arrived. I'm sorry, but it's a glioblastoma. The worst kind of brain cancer. The kind with a life expectancy of 14 months. I slumped forward in my chair, head between my hands, unborn child between my legs, and bitterly wept. For the next 14 months, Jason fought with every ounce of strength in his body, and I blogged about his progress, the birth of our little Joshua, our prayer needs, our successes, and well, I just kept blogging through it all. Jason ultimately took up his permanent residence in heaven on August 24, 2010. On the day we buried him, the bagpipes belted out Amazing Grace, his children threw yellow roses into the grave, and I promised him that I would tell our story. I promised I would not wallow in self-pity and our four beautiful children would not lose two parents, one to brain cancer, the other to unrelenting grief. And I promised him I would put one foot in front of the other and continue to live, continue to find joy, and continue to move forward into the future. Three lonely months later, I received a message from a complete stranger on my blog where I had so diligently updated the masses on Jason's journey with cancer, even after his passing. You don't know me, so I have no right to do this, except I just feel compelled to ask you to go to a website called The Ronnies. He is a young widower going through what you have gone through and is struggling, and I just thought you might be in a unique position to offer some help. You are an amazingly strong woman, a complete inspiration to me, and I wish you all the best, praying for your continued strength. That was the start of God revealing to me, in a real way, His faithfulness. It was also the beginning of a beautiful love affair with a man named Ryan from Oklahoma and his three children, Tate, Maya, and Jada. Ryan would become my husband the following year, and we would officially become mom and dad to seven children in 2012 with the finalization of all of the adoptions. In 2014, we followed our hearts to rural Tennessee, where we continue to live simply, love deeply, and find joy in the small, everyday occurrences, numerous occurrences and moments with our eight children. Yes, we added one more, little Annabelle, to the family in 2015, and we always strive to rise above the past, living in simple joy, and of course, to just keep living. From sharing my story, I've been validated and moving forward in my writing career. I've always had writing in my blood, and I remember writing all through my childhood, but when I wrote my story and someone actually published it, and then people bought it and read it, and they were changed by it, that became a little bit of validation. It's just such an incredible honor that I get to do what I love to do and share it with the world. My biggest dream involves my family. My husband and I purchased a big property on the Tennessee River about five years ago. No one had had lived in this house for 15 years and it was in need of total restoration, which we've accomplished slowly but surely. This house has a beautiful stone patio that overlooks the river. It was an addition that really sold me on the property. It's kind of out of the ordinary, but my dream involves this patio. I want to be old and gray with my husband, Ryan, out there on this patio with our kids as they grow and go off to college and get married and possibly have babies. I envision a brick pizza oven, a big wooden table with tons of chairs that my husband built with his own two hands, bottles of wine and sparkling juice for the younger ones, laughing with my grown children, their children running all around, Looking at my husband with a twinkle in our eye, like, yes, we did it. We created a joyful legacy. And I guess part of this whole dream is health. I want to grow old and gray with my husband. I want my children to be healthy enough to visit us. And I want the joy of future generations surrounding us. Thank you so much for listening to my story. If you want to connect it all and to continue to follow the ongoing saga, you can find me at jessplusthemess.com. And also at Facebook, Just Plus The Mess, and Instagram, Just Plus The Mess. Thanks for listening.
2: Allison Sutter is an author of Self-Help and Children's Books and a preschool teacher. This is her story. If I was being honest with you, I'd tell you that every day I wake up, I think, God, is this hard? I'm so tired of being me. I wonder how much longer I can keep it up. I feel heavy, lost, and unworthy. I feel the weight of my world on my shoulders. Finding my way back to joy. If I was being honest with you, I'd tell you that some days it's hard to find my way back to joy. Some days are clouded with fear, anger, and frustration. So much so that I can't see the forest through the trees. Some days I yell at my kids for no reason. I kick the wall just to feel a sliver of emotional relief. I feel sorry for myself that I feel so invisible. Finding my way back to joy. If I was being honest with you, I'd tell you that I know who I really am. A source-connected being of pure love. A consciousness that chose to become human for the amazing experience that it is. And that that is my truth. Even when my intellect tries to argue with me that it isn't who I really am, I know in my heart and soul that it is who I really am. Finding my way back to joy. If I'm being honest with you, I'd tell you that I love my family with all of myself. That I'm ridiculously grateful for who they are, the things that they do for me, and for all the time we've spent together laughing and having fun. Finding My Way Back to Joy Almost every day of my life, I've struggled to find my way back to joy. I've lived with chronic anxiety and panic attacks since the age of 10. For 37 years, when I open my eyes to another day, I always ask myself, can I do this again today? Some days I feel okay. Some days I don't. Yet, I continue on. The things that help me walk the path of joy are a great fitting pair of jeans that make me feel pretty, a hot shower that helps me think, food that heals my body, celery is my favorite, going to work and feeling really good about the contributions that I've made. I'm a preschool teacher by day and a mom by night. There is a lot I can offer the little people of this world. I make dinner every night so that my family has one more excuse to gather together and talk. I ride my bike so I can feel the wind against my body. I sit in the warm sun so I can feel its radiance and the shade to feel its relief. I write so I can feel creative. Finding my way back to joy. When I was 11, my sister was admitted to a rehabilitation center for teen girls She was 13, violent and angry. She drank, she did drugs, she pushed people away. She ran away from home, she defied my parents, she lied to everyone. She hated herself more than anyone. She consumed my parents' time, energy, and resources with a vengeance. She seemed to hate me for just being me. She seemed to hate life for just being life. Growing up in the wake of a Category 5 hurricane like my sister was devastating. Finding my way back to joy. It was six weeks from diagnosis to death. One of the few nights I'd slept at mom's house that summer, she'd developed an extremely high fever. She was writhing in pain in bed as I tried to cool her forehead with a wet cloth. Since the divorce... My parents separated after Dad's affair with his office nurse. I'd been jumping back and forth between houses. No one really knew where I was, who I was with, or what I was doing. Dad was a busy doctor, and Mom struggled for years with rheumatoid arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis. She was in a lot of physical pain. I was sad, confused, and unsure of what would happen to me after the divorce. Mom was in incredible pain that night. I drove her to the emergency room. It was there that they discovered her body was riddled with cancer. It had pretty much infiltrated every organ in her body. She was not a candidate for chemo or any other treatment. Mom never left the hospital, except to move into hospice care at my brother's house in Novi, Michigan. The night mom died, we were by her side, my brother, sister-in-law, and me. I remember the pallor and dryness of her skin, the skeletal nature of her frame, and how she struggled and labored for every breath. Watching a loved one transition from cancer is torturous. Nothing can prepare you for what you see and what you feel. And nothing can be done sometimes but wait. I cried for her and the physical and emotional pain we were both in. I cried about the things I'd said as an angry, confused teenager. I cried about the things that I couldn't say sitting next to her that day. I cried about the things that I'd never get to say as a mature woman with my own kids. Moments after mom transitioned into death, I stopped crying. I stopped feeling pain. It was the oddest experience. It was as if someone had hit pause on my pain. I felt suspended in this eerie, otherworldly kind of sensation. Instead of emotional pain, I felt overwhelming peace and love and a sense of inexplicable security, that everything was okay as it was in that moment. At the time, it confused me a great deal. Why had I stopped feeling pain that only moments before had seemed inescapable and all-consuming? It took me 25 years to understand that when Mom died, she instantly rejoined the infinite consciousness that she was, that we all are. The consciousness that is pure love, the consciousness that is us, and that when we pass from this earthly plane, we instantly become. It's the fullness of this joy and energy of love that we are. We join this energy because it is who we are right now. It's not something we have to change to experience. What I learned is, We are the joy that we mistakenly believe is something we disconnect from in physical life. It's never lost to us. It's not something we need to rediscover. It's here for us now. We are it. It's here for us when we're in physical and emotional pain. It's present in us as we struggle, experience fear, and wonder if we can make it another day. The idea that I needed to find my way back to joy, or reconnect with something that was lost to me, is an idea that kept me feeling separate for 40 years of my life. It kept me longing for something that I felt was not something I could have. I believed, as many of us do, as we're taught from conversations with friends, in the media, and in stories we hear that joy is something we must strive for. It's talked about as if it's not a constant part of our being. It's discussed as if it's something we have to strive for, but isn't a guarantee. We learn that love and inner peace and joy are for the lucky ones, the rich ones, the skinny ones, the pretty ones, the smart ones, and that we must get rid of a part of us in order to usher it in. This concept of love and joy, being here sometimes and not other times, can even be heard being communicated between mother and child, friend and friend, co-worker and co-worker. But this is just a human misunderstanding, and it couldn't be farther from the truth. Mom's death and that inexplicable sudden feeling of connection, of love and safety, taught me that even in our darkest moments, We are joy. It's up to us to allow ourselves to be what we already are. We can choose the illusion of separateness, and many of us do, and that's okay. But we can also choose the realness of the connection of love that we are. Finding my way back to joy. During my senior year of college, I spent a semester studying in Paris. My dad told me, that I was not allowed to travel to Greece due to the political upheaval at the time. Being divergent, I did it anyway. On the boat ride from the boot of Italy to Greece, I saw the most beautiful young man getting coffee one day. We ended up in line next to each other, waiting to get off the boat, and we started talking. That beautiful young man became my husband, and together we've made a life for ourselves, filled with love and laughter and happiness. Our girls, ages 15, 14, and 11, are incredible creatures who keep us busy in ways we never could have imagined. I think daily about the ways in which I can help myself and my family find their way to this aspect of joy that we are, even when work and school and friends and daily pressures of life feel like too much. We all struggle with some degree of anxiety, self-doubt, and worry. So, remembering that we are joy in our daily lives is incredibly important. Being joy when there's laundry to do and bills to pay. I have the privilege of picking up socks and doing dishes and fixing an aging home daily. These menial chores can easily become the things that push me over the edge, that make it hard to face another day. If I let them, the thing that brings everything back into focus for me is remembering that I've come here to this physical plane for the experience, not only to pick up socks and pay the electric bill, but to experience all facets of life as an emotional being and a creative creature. I've chosen to incarnate, to examine the good, the bad, and the ugly and to navigate my way back to the truth. That is, it's okay, no matter what is happening in the moment. I have come here to experience the idea of separateness, so that I can know more thoroughly that I am the joy and love present within me, and my experience right now. I call this ever-present vibration of love the river of well-being. I imagine that there is a river flowing through me at all times. I can choose to stand on the riverbank and feel sad that I'm not going with the flow. Or I can get into the river and experience firsthand the well-being that I am. It's my choice. We create our own experience of reality. Being the joy that I am using the power of music and writing. I love writing. Specifically, I love writing while listening to music. In fact, I'm doing it right now. I am the joy and love by doing this. 21 Pilots, Heathens. Pentatonix, Can't Help Falling in Love. Sophia Carlberg, Viva La Vida, Coldplay Cover. If you listen to the Viva La Vida lyrics, you kind of get an understanding of the fact that humans Have been experiencing hardship and disconnection since the beginning of time. It's just what we do. And it's okay. It's something we came here to experience being joy, experiencing disconnection, because it's all an illusion and we are love. Will I, as the human version of me, be in the vibration of love 24 7 since I know intellectually that it is who I really am? Not a chance. And that's okay. I personally have learned that emotions are simply data feedback. They tell me when I'm disconnected and when I'm standing on the riverbank and outside of the river of well-being and when I'm in it, when I'm in the flow. There is incredible value in both these perspectives. Standing on the riverbank, feeling separate, and being in the river, being in the flow. All the hardships I've experienced in life and all the evidence of love that I am experiencing right now are why I've chosen to be here in this time and space. They all have value. I hope that hearing my story as I tell it to you today is one that has encouraged you to join me, even if just a little bit, into your own river of well-being that runs through you as you listen to this podcast. I'll leave you with a passage from the book of story beginnings. Quote Beware, you writers who write within, be mindful of stories that you begin, for every story that has a beginning may have a middle and an end. Know this too before you write though day must always lead to night, not all beginnings make good tales, some succeed while others fail. Let this book its judgment lend on whether and how your beginnings end. I love that section from the book, The Book of Story Beginnings by Cladstrup. What it says to me is that we are all writing stories about our lives constantly. And whether we write a story that we want to extend into a middle and an end is up to us. And we get to choose the context, the flavor, the characters of every story that we begin. Thank you for listening.
0: This is Seek the Joy Podcast, the power of storytelling. Join us, share your story. For more information and to get involved, visit seekthejoypodcast.com. This series airs the third week of every month, and make sure to join us for Seek the Joy Tuesday. Until then, thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your bravery. Thank you for your joy. Thank you for being here, and thank you for listening.